Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a marvelous truth that in Christ there is no east or west, in Him no north or south, but we are one family of God all the way around the world. Whatever the language it is that we are speaking, whatever the nationality, whatever the race, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are kindred, we are brothers and sisters. And so we've joined today with brothers and sisters in Europe, in France, in England, with brothers and sisters here in this country, with brothers and sisters to the south in Mexico and, and throughout Central America and South America, and brothers north into Canada, brothers and sisters in Japan and in Mongolia and in the Philippines and in China and Korea, and even brothers and sisters in North Korea meeting secretly on this very day. We all join together to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. What a joyful thing it will be one day in heaven to join together and to worship Him in one grand assembly. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Genesis chapter 19. We serve one Lord. We also have one authority as believers across this world, and that is the Word of God. Why don't we ask the Lord to open it before us this morning? Father, thank You for my brothers and sisters here at the chapel, for this family. What a blessing they are to me and I know to one another. Father, I pray that this morning that You would do Your work in and through the body with each part ministering to the other, that Your work in us might be accomplished, that we might be encouraged, that we might be strengthened and equipped, that we might be challenged and admonished and corrected, and that we might be built up all for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Fathers, we come to Your Word in this passage this morning. We ask Your grace upon us. Open Your Word to us and open our hearts that we might receive it and that we might just not be just those who hear, but those who take it and put it into practice. Lord, may Your Word change us for our good and for the glory of Jesus. To that end, we ask Your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have ever driven much through the mountains, and most of you have, I grew up out in West Texas when I was young, and we used to go up into the mountains of New Mexico and up into Colorado. I still love whenever I get out that direction. Uh, but if you don't get out there, you can go through the mountains of, of Appalachia or uh, uh, through the mountains even in, in the Ozarks. And you'll run into things like signs like these. Signs that say the road is twisty and curvy and you better slow down. There are hills and you better slow down going down the hills so you don't... Uh, Get going too fast, and especially if you got a big truck and burn your brakes out, you don't want that. So you're used to signs like these. All of these signs are aimed at getting you to, to take cautions so you don't end up leaving the roadway and having an accident. But I think probably the most effective sign to that end is probably a sign like this. When you come across some place where you see that someone has already made a fatal mistake, going too fast for the weather conditions, 
not listening to the warnings. One or more folks died in a some horrible accident. The passage before us here in our passage in Genesis, and I hope you've taken your Bible and opened to Genesis 19. The passage before us here is not a pretty one. But it stands before us this morning like a white cross. A sign of danger where if we are not careful, if we do not exercise caution, we can lose control and plunge into ruin. Passages like this are why the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians and said, these things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us. When we come across a passage like this, we're to look at it and we're to take it to heart, a warning. We're to act upon it. This morning as we come to chapter 19, it means we skip past chapter 18. Had to do that in the series in order to be done before Christmas. But uh, chapter 18, just to give a brief summary so we're ready, because uh, it sets the stage here for chapter 19. Abraham is visited by three men. One of them is the Lord Himself along with two angels all of whom appear as ordinary men. They come and Abraham sees them coming. And I don't think at first he knows who they are, but he he welcomes them and offers them a meal. And they have a, a time of fellowship. And in over the course of the time, it becomes clear who they are. Then when they finish the meal, the two angels get up and they head down to the Jordan Valley and going toward Sodom while the Lord and Abraham have a discussion about God's impending judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. That brings us here to chapter 19, and we pick up the story. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go your way in the morning. No, they answered, we'll we'll spend the night here in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. It was very common in that, in that day and in this culture for people when they would come into a town, they didn't have hotels and motels and, and very often they would just spend the night in the town square. That was the common thing to do, but not a good thing in Sodom. Lot knows it's not safe and he doesn't say that here, but we find it out later. He insists that they come home with him. Back to the text. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And once we understand just in those few words just how evil this place is, whole town, it says, a mob, a huge mob of, of 
Every man, old or young, has come together to sexually abuse these strangers. Verse 6, Lot went out to meet them and he shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so they could not find the door. (laughs) Suddenly it appears these are not ordinary men. They work a miracle. The ESV captures what happens here, though, I think, in much better with the Hebrews than does some of the other translations. It wasn't just they couldn't find the door. It says here in the ESV, they wore themselves out groping for the door. They were so persistent in their evil, even stricken with blindness. They, they continue to push forward. But they're frustrated. Back to verse, this passage, verse 12. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters? Or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that He has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy this city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, Take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the, or his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, My lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a a town near enough to run to and, and it is small. Let me flee to to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He, that's the angel, said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why it is the town was called Zoar. Zoar means small. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. God does some dramatic judgment on these cities, something like a a volcanic eruption or even maybe a nuclear type eruption, that type of just big thing. And and it says that these minerals and things are falling back. And when it says Lot's wife looked back, it wasn't just she glanced at the Hebrew implies there was a uh, there was a pausing and a turning and a and a longing, perhaps even a starting to head back to the city. She is overtaken by the blast and by the deposits falling from the sky. Probably something like what happened to the people at uh, in the town of Pompeii when Vesuvius erupted, and they were instantaneously almost encrusted by the ash from the volcano. So it is that she turns to a pillar of salt. is encrusted by these minerals. Verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw the dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, He remembered Abraham and He brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. What a passage. Full of action, full of all kinds of mystifying things. So many things we could talk about. We have such limited time. I'm just going to look really at three questions this morning that at least rise up in my mind and perhaps rise up in yours. First question is this. I wonder how it is that you or anyone, Lot in this case, can sink so low. This is Abraham's beloved nephew. He traveled with Abraham the the many difficult and dangerous miles leaving Ur of the Chaldees going up to Haran and then later from Haran into Canaan as Abram followed the call of God and going to a land that God was going to show him. Lot here joins in the whole journey. He was raised in Uncle Abram's godly home. But now we see him offering his daughters to be abused by a crowd of perverts. Um, Not just a crowd, a vicious mob. And we say, who does that? What kind of sick man does that? The story even gets more bizarre and disgusting. I stopped and didn't read the rest of the chapter or not going to, mostly because of time, but... The story gets more bizarre in the closing verses. You see, after, after they make it to Zoar and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other, two of the other of the five cities are destroyed, just this little one is left, they get there, they no longer feel safe there and they run up into the mountains and they, they make it to a, they get to a cave and that's where they settle in and live. Lot and his two daughters, Lot is now a caveman, so to speak. 
and then his daughters embracing all of the wonderful morality that they have that they have soaked in in Sodom, they conspire together to get Dad drunk a couple of nights. And then they commit, each of them commits incest with their father in order to get pregnant because they're afraid that they will never get married and their family line will come to an end. And Lot, through all of this, is too soft to have a clue as to what's happening and what they've done. You know, you don't even have to be a Christian to be appalled at this guy. You don't have to be a godly person to be appalled at this guy. Most anybody who would read this will go, who does this? How does anybody sink this low? Nobody ends up like this on purpose. But the truth is that an awful lot of people do end up like this. It happens all too often. I'd like for us to note in answering this question, how do you sink this low? I'd like us to note six pitfalls that have led to Lot's downfall. Because I think they will help you and me if we want to avoid the dangers. You see, he's the cross there, the road sign that's warning, don't end up like this. We ought to see how he got there. First thing that I notice about Lot going back to early on when he pops on the scene And we noticed it in chapter 13 when Abraham and Lot have to part company because they have have gotten too wealthy. And we learn immediately about Lot that he is self-focused. He is selfish. He is self-absorbed. He is concerned about himself, not about God, not about others. There in chapter 13, you know what happens. You remember Abraham says, hey Lot, look. We can't stay together. we got too much stuff. We, we're having problems. We're going to have to split up. Look around you and where do you want to go? And I'll go the opposite way. Lot immediately chooses the best of the best. The best of everything, actually, for himself. It's a selfish, ungrateful man. That's a dangerous thing for us to become a someone who is self-absorbed, selfish. Secondly, we discover that he is materialistic. He is looking for the stuff of earth. He's attracted to the Jordan Plain when he chooses the best land. He looks out and he sees the Jordan Plain and he sees that it is well watered and lush. That there are cities there and they are wealthy. He's attracted to go that way because it's the, it's the place where you can find ease and the place where you can find prosperity, material advantage. See, what we discover is Lot is a guy who wants to have, he wants to enjoy, he wants to experience everything the world has to offer. And that can be a dangerous desire. The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin, destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, 
eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Bible doesn't say that wealth is evil, that having things is bad. What it says is that people who, who make it their desire, who make it their ambition to become rich, people who put money at the, the top of their motivation, people who love money, says such things become a trap, a snare. They destroy themselves. Paul here has just described the life of Lot. The third thing I notice about Lot is his life is one of progressive compromise. It begins with this with this selfishness that puts himself first above others and above God. It moves to this desire and this lust and this longing for all of the wealth and all of the pleasures and all of the ease that he thinks might be available down there in the, in the plains, the cities of the plains. It moves on when he, when he goes down to the, to, into the valley, chapter 13, verse 12, it says this, Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Nearby, close, but keeping a distance from the city. We noticed that Sodom was Sin City sometime back. And he doesn't actually go into the city, just close. See, the reality is that big sin is typically not one big uh, colossal failure Big sin, big failure typically is the culmination of a long series of small compromises. Little sin, little failure, little just give in a little here. Getting close but not actually going in. Then we get to chapter 14, verse 12, where it says that, They also carried off this with the five kings. They carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One, two, three years after he goes to Sodom, he is no longer near it. He's living in. When we get to chapter 19 that we just read in the first verse, it says that that Lot is sitting in the gateway or in the gate of the city. To have a seat in the gate of the city means something. See, the gate of the city where was business took place, it's also where, where the leading of the city took place. It's where the elders sat. It's where the judges sat. It's where the leading business people sat. It was the place of authority. It was the place of honor. If you had a seat there, it means that you were positioned there. It didn't mean you were just passing by. It means you had you had position, you had authority, you had honor. Lot is now not just living in Sodom, he's a card-carrying member. And not just that, he's some kind of leadership, authority. We saw later in chapter 19, not only is he leading there as a leader, when he addressed the crowd and tried to turn them away from his house that night, he said, listen, my friends... Lot has drunk the Kool-Aid of Sodom. (laughs) And he now considers these guys his peeps, his buds. This is how we get into sin. Into big sin. It's one small compromise after another. 
Brothers and sisters, don't excuse and don't ignore little com- little compromises in our life because they, they accumulate and they build upon one another and lead us to ruin. He's been self-focused, materialistic, and moving in progressive compromise. But a fourth thing I notice is that Lot has ignored warnings. When he moved into Sodom or moved down into the valley, the scripture made it clear back in chapter 13 that the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. All of the of the unbelievers, the folks who just lived in the area. They weren't necessarily great folks, but everybody regarded the folks of Sodom as exceedingly wicked. He knew that when he went down there, but he ignored the fact that there's exceedingly wicked folks there and went to move right down next to them and then finally into with them and then became part of them. Not only did he ignore Sodom's reputation, but he ignores his conscience. We don't see it here, but in Second Peter chapter two, the apostle Peter writes that Lot was uh, his 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 um, mind, his heart was tormented daily by all of the evil that was around him. But while he was tormented every day, it wasn't enough to make him move or to move his family out of that. A third thing that he ignored is he ignores a very close call. You remember in chapter 14 when those five, excuse me, four kings from the east came and captured the five cities and took them captive along with all the stuff, including Lot and his family, and they go. Lot immediately learned right then how quickly everything you have can be taken away. You know, sometimes we think we have security in our stuff, but Lot learned right there that there is no security in our stuff. Not only was he taken captive, but if Nothing had happened, nothing else had happened. He and his family would have ended up being slaves down along the Persian Gulf. But you remember Abram came along and led a dramatic rescue team, rescue party, and God worked a miraculous victory and He's delivered Lot and Lot sees this miraculous deliverance by his uncle Abraham. As they come back, he witnesses how Abram and and this mysterious priest of God, Melchizedek, give glory and honor to God for the miraculous deliverance. And he sees worship of God again. He's reminded of what it is to worship the true God. He also sees the contrast as his godly uncle Abram meets up with the wicked king of Sodom, King Bera. And he sees the contrast between Godliness and wickedness. And he sees Uncle Abraham say no to the the riches and the wealth of Sodom, refusing to be corrupted or to compromise by the tainted wealth of Sodom. He sees these things and yet Lot just goes right back into Sodom instead of listening and seeing the warning signs. Brothers and sisters, God in His grace frequently puts warning signs into our life when we start wandering away from Him. But how often we blow past those, don't we? Fifthly, I notice that Abram is deluded by sin. Sin is deceptive. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of this, he says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the, there it is, the deceitfulness of sin. 
sent him to come in and to deceive us and to blind us to reality in a, in a way to make us almost insane, where we just are not rational people. You see, when we get blinded by this, we, we don't see the reality of the foolishness of sin. We don't see the reality of the dangers of sin and we excuse the evil of sin by rationalizing it away. I think it explains why so many people do such horribly stupid and terribly evil things. See, you and I, looking at other people, can easily spot sin and say, that's foolish. That's harmful. Why would you do that? Until it's in our life. You've been there? Or maybe let's get it away from us. It's easier to see in somebody else. You know, your next door neighbor or your, or your, you know, your aunt Mildred or your, you know, or your kids or whoever, where they look at somebody and they go, that's stupid. I can't believe they're doing that. That's so wrong. And then they go do the same thing. You say, wait a minute, (laughs) you say it's wrong over here, but why are you doing this? Well, it's different. No, it's not. (laughs) We see that. Sin blinds us, it deludes us. So we excuse it and we diminish it. I don't know any other way to explain how, um, except the insanity of sin, to explain how Lot is willing to throw away his daughters to a perverted crowd. Because as we said, who does that? I don't find any other way to explain why Lot's wife, as they are fleeing this city that is about to be destroyed by God, goes, my grandmother's silver, or whatever it is that makes her turn back. I don't find any other explanation for why it is when when Lot realizes these are angelic visitors, these are heavenly visitors who are trying to get me out of the city and they say, hurry, Lot, you need to get your family, you need to get out of here right now. And you know what the text says he does? He hesitates. (laughs) Reminds me, you remember Jack Benny? I know you have to be like old to do it. Old comedian way back when, the guy who, his big thing was, he was the cheapest guy in the world. <laughs> big cheap cheapskate. And, and one of the things he, I remember one of the gags was, he's there and this robber comes up, you know, with a mask and a gun and, give me your money or your life. And Jack Benny is there. And the guy said, well, and he says, don't rush me, I'm thinking about it. And so it is with Lot. Lot, flee the city or you're going to burn. I'm thinking about it. They have to grab him and pull him out. That's insanity. That is what sin does. It deludes us. He's been self-focused, materialistic. He progressively compromises in little things. He ignores the warning. He's deluded by sin. And there's one more thing, and I just have to stick it in there. It's not really a big point, but I think it's something we shouldn't ignore. And that's this. Alcohol plays a part in this. Now, I know the Bible does not forbid alcohol, and nor do I. I'm not here this morning 
we're going to pull out posters and we're going to you know, go to everybody's houses and break all the bottles in your cabinets or whatever. But I have to point something out. You see, if Lot had refused the drink that his daughters were trying to give to him, he wouldn't have gotten drunk. And if he hadn't gotten drunk, he would never have participated or been part of this whole devious thing they set up. It never would have happened. And when we look at the world around us, and as a pastor, I see far too much of this. When morality is compromised, when violence happens in a home, when crime occurs out there, when there are accidents in cars, all you have to do is look and you can see the statistics. In a majority of all of those things, alcohol is a factor. There is much evil in our world that is linked to alcohol, drugs, There are advantages to completely abstaining from them. That is what I have chosen to do, but I do not mandate it for you. I simply ask you to be careful and and do... If you're going to choose to drink, read the book. And what you'll discover on the pages of Scripture is there are warnings about alcohol. Be careful with it for many reasons. Read what it says. And if you're going to choose to do so, then be responsible. Understand the Scripture definitely says, and it it commands against being drunk. It also reminds us to remember the dangers and to to remember those around us who look to us as examples and act accordingly. But these are the things that bring Lot down to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. It brings us to a quick couple of questions. Second question is this. With, with as low as Lot has gotten, as bad as things are, is Lot saved or not? Is he a saint or an ain't? <laughs> are we going to see Lot in heaven or is he going to fry in hell? I think that's a great question. So you may have asked that. So you maybe never have. But as we're as you're listening to Lot, you're saying, "Hmm." Well, I tell you what. When I read this story, I think, "Man, this guy got a fry." The Apostle Peter has something interesting to say in his little letter, Second Peter, chapter two. He's talking about something else, making a point, and he uses Lot for an example, and he writes this, And if he, God, rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. How many of you picked that up when we were reading Genesis? I didn't think so. This is the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who uses the word righteous not once but three times to describe Lot. says he's a righteous man and what that means, it's another way of saying he's saved. When we get to heaven, we'll find Lot there. 
Not because we saw it there in Genesis chapter 19, but because God Himself says He was a righteous man. What that means is He had faith in God. He believed in God, declared Him righteous. We don't see it in His behavior here. Big surprise. I think, by the way, Peter says it three times because we wouldn't believe it if he just said it once. He was a saint, but a tainted one. Now, lots of folks, and that's no pun intended, try to do what Lot did. That is this. To believe in God. To be a believer in God who has a future in heaven, while at the same time wanting to live on in earth, not just on earth, but in earth and be a part of everything that the world has to offer. You see, try to have a foot in both places. I'm going to be a citizen of heaven, but I'm going to be a citizen of earth. You see, I want to go to heaven, but I want to have all the, quotes fun that earth has. Have you ever heard somebody talk like that? Have you ever talked like that? Matter of fact, are you thinking that right now? See, because there's an awful lot of folks who think that way, I have to ask a third question. Well, if Lot is going to be in heaven, did Lot win? It was Lot playing this game and, and w- did he win? And if so, dude, <laughs> I can, I can put, I can make my reservation in heaven and I can play here on earth and you bet the boast of both, best of both worlds and here we go. Well, let me say, first of all, if that's what you're looking for, if that's what you want, Lot is your poster boy. Because according to Peter, he made it. According to Genesis, I don't see it, but in, according to the Scripture, he made it. So Lot won! Well, not exactly. <laughs> By the way, let me back up. First of all, if that's what you think, realize it's a dangerous game. It's really not a game, but we'll call it a dangerous game. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like surviving a fall from an airplane in flight and living to tell about it without a parachute. The Serbian flight attendant who survived when the plane she was on blew apart. It was 1972, 33,300 feet in the air. Her plane blows apart. She falls without a parachute. She lands and lives to tell about it. It happens. People fall from planes and don't die. But I wouldn't count on it if I were you. I wouldn't jump out of a plane without a parachute and expect to land on the ground safely. Well, she was broken up, but she lived. See, it's a dangerous game. What more often than not is such a person is deceiving themselves and they think maybe I've pulled one over on God and they are lost. You see what James says about this. By the way, read the, book, read the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 10. Read the book of 1 John 3. Read James chapters 2 and chapter 4. What I find is there is no comfort in Scripture for someone who 
claims to believe in God, but lives as if they do not care. What James writes is such a person, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, they choose and become an enemy of God. A believer in Jesus Christ can sin, and every one of us do. And the Bible says the one who truly is a believer in Jesus Christ does not lose their salvation. We are born into the family of God. We have eternal life. We don't lose that by sin. Abraham, we've seen himself, the great man of faith, has blown it already a couple of big times. And by the way, a little spoiler alert, he's going to blow it again. The true child of God keeps coming back. Is it possible to be a believer in Christ and live a worldly life? Lot, well, yes. But does he win? Very quickly as I wrap it up, let's look at some of his big losses. Everything he lived for was gone in a day. Twenty years he lives in Sodom. Everything that he built his life around was gone like that. If he thought he had power or influence in Sodom, he was sorely disappointed when they rejected him and wouldn't listen to him that last night. If he thought he had friends, he was disappointed when he found out that they consider him an outsider and they planned to abuse and kill him like they were going to do with the strangers there. If he thought people respected him, that was gone. Even the worst of the worst wouldn't respect the guy who's going to throw his daughters out. It's gone. His future son-in-laws, at the most serious moment of his life, his future son-in-laws thought he was a big joke. (laughs) Yeah, right. He lost his wife. He lost all of his property, all of his possessions. He trades his condo for a cave and he ends up with a huge family mess on his hands. (laughs) He lost rewards. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Store up treasures in heaven that last forever, not the ones on earth that moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Well, Lot did it backwards. He stored up all his treasures on earth and they were gone. What about heaven? It's possible to have a saved soul but a wasted life. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. We, don't, we won't go there this morning, but the Apostle Paul talks about how every bit of, our, of what we've done on earth is going to be one day when we get to, to glory, it's going to be put to the test by fire. He says if it's stuff that was just done for earth, just stuff where we were laying our treasures here, that stuff is going to burn up in this test like wood and hay and stubble. It's going to burn. He says, but if it's stuff we've done for God, if it's the stuff that Jesus is talking about, the treasures of heaven, it goes through the fire and it's, Gold and silver and precious stones and its eternal treasures. So it's possible, as Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he suffers loss. He saved himself, but only yet by fire. There's, it's, he's in heaven, but he had a wasted life and misses out on some of the treasures that God desires for us in heaven. More than that, he has a lost witness. Interesting, the Scripture never says that either his wife or his kids were righteous. In other words, they're lost. They're not going to heaven. 
And not one soul in Sodom is going to heaven. If they were, God would have gotten them out for sure, for God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, we find in Genesis chapter 18. And they didn't even bother trying to get anybody else out of Sodom. Lot was there for 20 years knowing God and having eternal life and never shared that with anyone, never pointed anyone else to God. sad thing is that there are many Christians, some of us even in this room, who have known God our whole life. We know the way of salvation. We say, I'm going to heaven. I believe in the Word of God. I believe that there is a heaven and a hell. And I believe I'm trusting in Jesus Christ so I can go to heaven. And we really could care less that people we know are going to hell. So we've never really talked to anybody about Christ And part of the reason we don't talk to people about Christ is because we're living too much like the world to be of any witness. And you see, we look a lot like Lot. Lastly, he has a rotten legacy. Not only is he known as the worst dad of the year for being willing to throw his daughters out to the crowd, the sons that ultimately his daughters bear become Two groups of people, the Moabites and the Ammonites, both of whom become problems for the nation of Israel. The Moabites uh, used their women to seduce the men of Israel and cost the lives of 25,000 Israelites. You can read about that in Numbers. The Ammonites and their idolatrous worship of Molech sacrificed babies to the fire. And that abomination makes its way in and corrupts some of the people of Israel through the centuries. Lot's story is here in the pages of Scripture and I took the time, even though we're looking at the life of Abraham, I took the time to look at this because it's a contrast. And the life of Lot is here like the cross by the roadside to say this is where somebody went off and crashed and burned. And it's here to ask the question, are you going down that dangerous road? It's here to stand here as a warning to call us back to exercise caution so that we won't follow the tragic path of a half-hearted faith that says, I want to follow God, but I don't want to miss anything in the world. You see, the reality is half-hearted faith is not really much faith at all. Instead, we should follow the example of Abraham who learned the only path worth following is God's path. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would follow me, he must take up, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will, wants to save his life is going to lose it, but the one who loses his life for me will find it. It's only as we are willing to say, I'm following Him with my whole heart, that we find life as He intends it, both here and the treasure forever.